Hi, my name is Dominic Pym and this is Uncommon. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Are you an entrepreneur or marketer who needs help making podcasts, video or animation? Perhaps you don't have time to manage a freelancer or the budget to deal with an agency. Well, Neural Media can help you with simple and affordable content creation, saving you time and money by taking away the pain of producing that content. To learn more, head to neural.com slash media. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash media. Play around with our pricing or request a callback directly. Listeners to the show receive a special discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON. Welcome to another episode of Uncommon. My name's Jordan Michaelides and I'm your host. In this episode, I have for you Dominic Pym. Dominic is the co-founder of Ferrokia and Up Banking. His involvement in numerous startups that include Pin Payments and Zudio has led to an enviable suite of product-first principles for a man co-running one of Australia's most interesting neobanks. It was a very enjoyable interview, as as they all are, but for me, this is very interesting looking at the fintech space, where we spoke about co-founding his business with Grant Thomas, first jobs and entrance into tech, the aha moment for Up, product-first business principles, engagement and metrics, innovation versus competitive advantage, and crypto and open banking as well. If you liked the episode, do leave us a rating on your podcast app. We're trying to get 100 reviews at the moment. Uh, Shout out to Choose One Oz uh, for your recent review. If you want to shout out, get in next week before Thursday. If you want to share it with your friends, just tag us at uncommon underscore show on Instagram and you can watch the episode in full, uncommon on YouTube. And don't forget, of course, to like and subscribe. Uh, show notes and all previous guests, as always, neural.com slash podcast. With that being said, thanks so much for listening, guys. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Dom Pim. Dom, seems like we're live. Good day. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah. How are you? Uh, very good. I've got um, quite a few openers from people messaging me. Um but one of the more unusual ones I got was actually a comment, and it was, how many up babies are there? And I've, he won't tell me the context of what it means. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in previous sort of conversations, people ask me about, you know, what matters about the business and what, what drives us to do these sort of things. And um, one of the things that I've mentioned is that um, what, what matters in life is not profit or EBIT or EBITDA or return on investment, return on asset, whatever. That's all the sort of bullshit that people talk about. But... In business, the thing that matters most is the people that you work with, the culture, the environment, and helping like people with their lives. And so, yeah. and so, the question is: I knew exactly what it meant when I saw it. Is that I once said uh, that um, you know what was important to us is that how many people got mortgages, how many people got married, how many children were had in the office, basically. And so, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so this year we've had three newborns, um, really? and we have uh, another another three sort of kids. You know. Um, less than two, and then we have about eighteen kids between sort of two and ten. Wow! And so it's a, it's a, it's a, and there's people in the office that don't have kids as well. Um, but you know, we had a, a wedding just in the last month, um, and 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 that we're very, just very proud of that. That we can help people to live their life, not just our customers, but also our employees. And then we have like a really family sort of vibe where you feel part of the sort of Ferocia crew. Yeah, and I, I do love that mindset about 
in in business because if you can look at businesses, it, it puts it in perspective as a longer term thing. You're not here, there for two and a half years or 18 months or whatever. You can look at this place as somewhere that you may want to be for a decade and improve as you're there as well. I remember we interviewed a guy, Marty Fox, who runs probably one of the fastest growing high-end real estate businesses, but he also does marketing and whatnot. And uh, it seems like they always prioritize the the staff and their family first, then their health, like health, family, then the business. And mm. people had to have those things sorted, yeah, so my, maybe even as part of their metrics. Yeah, like my, my measure of, of success is how many people have been with the company for more than 10 years and how many people have been with the company for more than five years. And in the case of one of our employees, Tommy, he's worked with me for 16 years through five different companies. Wow. And so that, that, that's something to be proud of because it, it means that you develop a bond and a relationship. It means that you, you know, it's, it's easy to work with each other and understand each other's dynamic, but it's also an opportunity for us to support each other in their lives. Yeah. And I just think that sort of stuff's important. Yeah, it's it's way more important because you're not going to be – it's not going to help. You know, when you're on your deathbed, you're not sitting there thinking, oh, geez, I wish I could have earned an extra 50 bucks. You, you want you want an extra fifty minutes with your son, daughter, whatever, yep. loved ones. Well, also, um, it's worth mentioning on that topic is my my business partner who started the company with me. He, he um, Grant Thomas, uh, he's an ex AFL footy coach, and so yeah. yeah, so so for him, you know, the way I've it's hard. I, I don't like to speak on his behalf, but the way that I can describe some things that he said publicly and that he said to me is that w- when you're a leader of a football club, you you got kids coming in at fourteen and you got people retiring at thirty two. And between those sort of 18 years, um, you know, you can help them to form their life and help them to be better humans. Mm. And so that culture and the way that you help them to evolve, not just be better footy players, but be better people, I think has carried over now into our business, which is, you know, like, that's really important. How, how did you, how did the two of you meet? Uh, we, would, we, we were introduced um, by, so I was working in a you know, particular company. We were doing some interesting technology things. And we were looking for a new CEO, basically. And, okay. and, and one of our one of our sales guys said, "Hey, I know this guy, um, you know, Tomo, everyone calls him, but um, and, and you guys should meet, and you you, know, you might hit it off or whatever." And so we did. I, I call it the seven hour meeting, and that might be a slight exaggeration. It might have been four hours, but but it was it was meant to be like a sort of half hour or one hour sort of meet and greet. But we sort of just hit hit it off, and and, and suddenly. We were just chatting, yeah. And then the next thing you know, I'm around at his house. I met his wife and his kids, and like we we just had this bond, like right from the beginning. When we first met, and we're such different people, but I think I call it the yin and the yang because we come at things from a different perspective, a different angle. And I think that together, that's actually really strong. Yeah, and that was one of the things that I quite enjoyed hearing you talk about in other interviews because I feel like in a lot of cases when people found a business there's some areas where they can start stepping on toes. And I found even, you know, like I, I run our business with my partner and we have completely different skill sets and personality traits, which pair it together works exceptionally well. And I can see a very similar thing that you guys have yeah, I, I mean, in I that think regard. It, yeah, I think it's really important. If you have two – so that's why I guess in sort of technology companies you often have a technical co-founder and then a business co-founder, you know, and, and the two together have different responsibilities, different outlooks on life, different experiences. I think that just makes a stronger unit than, yeah. than having two people that have the same experience and level of experience too. Where did you guys first, first catch up? Was it just at a cafe or something like that? Uh, it was at my office actually, okay. <laughs> in the boardroom. Um, but, but that was like an eon ago. It was 12 and a half years ago. And oh, so, wow. Yeah, so we've, we've been working together now through several different companies over the last 12 and a half years. Okay. Yeah. And then when we started sort of Ferocia, which yeah. is our current company, we started that um, – 
I think well, over eight years ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I was speaking to him, uh, to Grant recently about doing an interview. He gave me his number and I, we haven't gotten through to organising it properly, but maybe this will give him, uh, give him a bit of the push that he needs. But I, I grew up a mad St Kilda fan and I always thought, geez, what is he doing these days? And then I looked it up and I was like, oh, wow, he's it up. It yeah, might have been like amazing. two, three years ago that yeah. I looked it up on LinkedIn and... Um, I'm like, oh wow, he's working with that guy Dom that I keep hearing about. <laughs> it's 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 funny how that works out. It's I mean, we're joined to the hip now. Like Tomo and I have been in business together for so long now that I think um, we can't imagine not being in business together. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's, it's it's exceptionally rare to have that. Speaking of kids, um, he's got a lot of them. That's it. Um, and, and you were talking about kids before in the business. What's your earliest memory of your own childhood? My own childhood, yeah, um, yeah. Actually, just on Tomo's kids, like I've worked with a lot of Tomo's kids because through our, yeah through our different companies, we've had uh, different people, and there's about there there's not about there's um, there's seven of them working with us at the moment. So so yeah, so he's got eight kids, um, yeah, and they're fantastic. Yeah, um, yeah so my, my earliest experience in the workforce um, as a kid would have been. Uh, going to work with my dad. Okay. Uh, my dad was managing director of an international steel company. Oh, wow. It was okay. a weird sort of job to have. Um, you know, most of the kids could say their dad was, I don't know, a plumber or an electrician or a football player or whatever, but, you know, they could sort of have something, whereas my dad was like a director. <laughs> you know, it's a sort, of a, a sort of boring job. Was that was that a steel company that operated here or...? Well, that, they, they had an office in, in, in uh, Melbourne, okay. uh, in Australia, and... Um, uh, yeah, but like a big international company that basically trade, you know, pipes and tubes and things. And so the first memory I have of the workplace is my dad taking me to his work um, and just seeing the warehouse. They had a warehouse full of steel, um, honing the steel, they call it, where you actually like kind of polish the inside of the, of the tubes. Yeah. Um, and then uh, playing um, racing cars on the computer. <laughs> <laughs> that literally reminds me of uh, going, see, my dad, um, it was a similar thing. I think whenever you have a parent that runs a business as well, you don't get to see them as much. So there's a you're, you're spending a lot of time at that workplace, to, depending on the situation. But they own a printing business, so they're a massive one-acre type size uh, factory, and uh, it's the same thing. Like running around on the printing machine, you would never get away with this now, ever. Like I remember, I was fourteen or fifteen, and I used to work on the big, what do they call them, six-color printing machines absolutely massive like it probably would have been 150 200 meters long um but yeah you would never have that ever again i also i worked at a printing factory so that was my experience like because i remember i was very young but one of my very first jobs was working at a printing factory and it was a binding and printing factory yeah yeah, they have the same yeah so they mostly do um legal books back then they were all like leather bound things and they have i think it was either a two-ton or a four-ton press it was a very big metal press and what you do is you put the book in it with the spine of the book and then you grab it with your hands and you pull it and it would just slam down this huge, you know, two-ton, four-ton, whatever it was, this huge bit of metal and it would help make curvature on the spine. Oh, right. So it was sort of like a guillotine. No, no, not a guillotine. Like it would just literally smash it to, to, to bend the spine ah. of the book. So when you pick up a book, it's curved. Yeah. But when the manufacturer it, it's flat. And then a human literally gets it, puts it in this machine, and then every single book gets smashed by this big machine, and it turns it into a curved sort of binding. That was one of my first jobs. Um, and I, unfortunately, my finger got caught in the machine, um, oh, and I, I crushed crushed my finger, um, which is pretty horrible. But um, yeah, but like you're saying nowadays, you, you wouldn't even be allowed to work. I mean, I think I was 14. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, you, you maybe, just I might have been 12. <laughs> I remember, um, yeah, because Dad had that bindery section out the back. They had 
a guillotine. They had these fo- like every assortment of folding machines where they such because he used to do a lot of like pamphlets for <laughs> the banks and stuff like that. He still does to this day. I don't know why they still send it out, but anyway, they uh, they also had these binders, but um, it, because they didn't do any books, so it was only like um, like commercial book stuff. So it was mainly like a, a staple type binder. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, me and this uh, this old guy, Aussie, uh, bless his soul. He's he's, uh, he's Peruvian, I think he was. No, he's Chilean, and he he and I used to run this machine together when I was like sixteen. So I used to always work there in the holidays. Many fond memories, but um, you just would never get away with that shit anymore. No, 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 you can't. Yeah. Is there a particular lesson that you've held with you to this day, directly or indirectly, from either of your parents? Uh, yeah, people do ask that from time to time. I, my, my dad was um, a very curious person and, and like a handyman around the house and always doing something with his hands, always like he was away a lot with work, but when he was at home, he was always renovating, always doing something, <laughs> you know, fixing the motorbike or renovating the house or, you know, whatever. And when I was a kid, we used to listen a lot to, um, uh, you know, Triple J and hear Dr. Carl. And Do- right. Dr. Carl gave some advice. So it wasn't my dad's advice, but it, it was about, your relationship with your parents um, and, and basically said that um, there's certain sort of personality traits that are inherent in people and then there's things that you basically learn from your parents and the two things that you need to be successful, according to Dr. Carl, <laughs> um, are um, uh, curiosity and confidence and they're two things that my dad had in spades. Yeah. So I look at what my dad achieved in his life and I respect that he's my dad but I don't respect what he did you know like so so i always say that i try to do the opposite of what my dad did but i think that's in his professional career but but in 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 his home life um he was always like mr fix it and 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 i just found that really fascinating so for me it was computers rather than say carpentry okay um you know like i pull apart computers and and, and pull apart software and, and do things like that um but i think that curiosity and the confidence are those two things that dr carl had said which i to this day i sort of i think they're really really important traits and i, I try to instill those traits in my employees and also in my own kids yeah i think it's inherently important being curious um, and it seems really common, particularly for those that work in tech, that they often start with computer games or video games in some form before they start playing around with actual computers themselves. What was it for you? You know, like for me, yeah. it was it was the first ever thing was um, uh, it was like finding because I, I I think it was like ninety five that they had that PGA golf game that came out. That was the first thing. I was about five or six. Mm-hmm. So that was the first thing to me. Yeah, so so for me it's interesting because I was very late to computers. Um, so my mates were into computers and I, I, I never was. My brother and I worked when we were young, like I said, in the printing factory when we were teenagers and stuff, and then worked at McDonald's and we had a car washing business, and a little printing company, all sorts of things. And I remember saving up our first pile of money and it was like, what are we going to do? We're we going to buy a car or we're we going to buy a computer? Um, and we decided to buy a computer and it was a crappy computer from like the trading post or whatever. But what I remember actually, just going back even a step, is that um, we had an Apple IIe at school, um, right. and it and that's, that's a, really right. a, a, a primary school, and it was one computer for the whole school, and there might have been I don't know hundreds of kids there, um, and it was wheeled around on a trolley, and you got allotted a little bit of time, and so it was like in the old, you hear people tell stories like you hear Bill Gates or something tell a story about like booking mainframe time. For us, it was booking time on the Apple IIe, yeah, <laughs> um, and so that was my first memory of like a computer, but we mostly just played Conan the Barbarian, um, but then my first um, my own computer is that we we set up a little network at home because my dad got a computer, okay, and then we got a computer, me and my brother, 
and we set up a little network with a, a, network, a parallel cable, a network cable. Um, and I built a network emulator for Doom so that we could, like that was my first thing I built on the so computer. So you could play each other. So you could play each other before they had ah. network Doom. And then we got an Ethernet. And then it took uh, a year or two later, we got another computer. So we had three computers in the house and we set up a network and then we had Ethernet, right? And so then I actually upgraded my, it was all made in like basic in those days, like in a, in a, in a sort of a, a command prompt. Um, but then we, we upgraded it from being a parallel um, and serial-based um, network to an Ethernet-based network emulator. Okay. And so we were able to play each other. And then they released Network Doom anyway. So it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't a waste of time. It was because we were curious about it and because yeah. we wanted to experiment with it that I think – and also, again, having the confidence to pull apart a computer or having a confidence to pull apart some software. Um, yeah, so that was some of my earliest memories. And we would have been maybe 16. And that, but that is where it starts, though. You know, like you get through that hurdle, and then you realize, ah, oh, this computer thing—it's not as hard, maybe, as what I thought it was. Um, and then you start playing with it in various different ways. I know you studied in that area. For you, though, what was sort of the thing or the project that you took on where you started to realize that, okay, this is probably going to be a career that I'll do. Uh, well, for me, it was very early. So my very first sort of job, real job, I had like job in the printing factory, McDonald's, that sort of stuff. But my first sort of corporate job in the city where I had to come in, you know, on the train and go to work every day uh, was a computer, a software company. Um, SAP. No, it was even before that. So there was like, so, before, so SAP was an interesting one. I'll come to that. But yeah. but before that, it was a little company. Um, it was, um, the first office was in Flinders Lane. Um, and I, I came in to help out my best mate's dad set up the network. That was what okay. I came in to help out with. I also volunteered at the local computer shop just to build computers and stuff. So I helped them put their computers together and put the network together. And then they were like, we need someone to write software. You know, would you be interested? And so I like raced home and started trying to teach myself how to write software because I think that at the time they were using QBasic. Okay. And so I, I had, had tinkered with some stuff and I thought, okay, I'll check that out. So I did that. And then, uh, and then very quickly within a year or so, maybe a year or two, and I was 16 at the time. I was young. Um, within a year or two, we then um, uh, had moved to Visual Basic. You know, like there's this like Windows had come out and this new way to write like code with with visuals and stuff. Um, and so that was sort of my, my introduction to it. But my real um, most important job, I think, in my career was with SAP. Yeah. Because at the time I was 19, I was 18 when I applied for the job, um, and I was living overseas. So I was living in um, South Korea. Um, and I was studying over there. So um, I sort of started university early and then I travelled overseas on a scholarship. And I um, I wanted to apply to all the top software companies in Melbourne because I wanted to come back to Melbourne and sort of get a real job, you know. And so Microsoft and Oracle and all this sort of stuff. And I came across this company, SAP, and I didn't really know other than them being a German software company, what, what they did or whatever. But what I noticed on their website is that they bragged about all the Fortune 500 companies or in Australia, like the top 20 companies or whatever, that use their software. And I was like, this is so cool. If I work for them, I'll get experience working with BHP and Woolies and Coles and you know, all these big brands in Australia, RACV, whatever. So I thought that'd be cool. Um, and so I applied for a job. And I remember getting on the tram and going down St Kilda Road and going to, at the time to Siebel and doing a job interview there and then going to Oracle and doing a job interview there and then going to Microsoft and doing a job interview there and then going to SAP. And each interview I got better and each interview I negotiated up my salary. <laughs> uh, so but I took the job at SAP, but the reason to take the job there when I was young and naive was because I thought, oh, isn't it a great opportunity to work with all these other amazing companies? I didn't realize at the time that SAP was the largest enterprise software company in the world. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, it was very interesting looking at that because you spent quite a lot of time there in different roles and it sort of seemed like you spent your time in banking and financial markets type systems, right? 
Well, a little bit. I mean, um, I, I worked with most of the big banks here in Australia and a bunch overseas. Um, but actually, so my job was a software developer. Um, I started out sort of, they call you a, a consultant when you work at SAP. So you work for them like full time. You're not yeah. consulting, but they consult you out, right? So so you have to choose a discipline. And originally, my discipline was um, financial services. Um, and so we did a project at, say, Telstra, which is not a financial services company, but it was to set up their financial systems. Um, and so, so that's where I sort of started, but because I was passionate about computers and writing software and all that, so I, I became a developer at, at SAP, and then eventually I moved to Singapore and, and, and worked in a group there we call the regional group, which the regional group basically build new software and integrate new software and then do fir- world-first implementations. Uh-huh. So I got to work not just with banks, but with, I don't know, petroleum companies, oil and gas, um, uh, aerospace, government, um, all sorts of different industries uh, all around the world, and amazing companies and things. So the way I tell it now is that when I look back on that, I worked with 47 of the Fortune 500 companies over seven years across, I don't know, a dozen countries or whatever. And so for me, from the age of sort of 19 to 26, it was like a baptism of fire. It was like just travel the world. I ended up landing in, you know, ended up in Silicon Valley um, working on some amazing technology there. Um, and it was, it was just incredible. Like to, to, I was based in Singapore for a while. We, we had responsibility for 13 countries across Asia. Uh, I worked in Japan. I lived in Korea. I moved to the UK. Then we went over to America so we could work. You know, live, live basically in Palo Alto for a period of time. It wasn't very long. It was less than a year. Um, but it was exposure to Silicon Valley yeah. when it was 1999. You know what I mean? Like it was like, still, maybe it was even 1997 or something. It was like still in the 90s. Um, and like Google didn't exist, for example. Yeah. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Like it's hard for people now to even remember that. It's funny you mentioned that because I just finished um, reading how Google works. And <clears throat> until you read books like that, you do forget how like Google's only really been around for 15 years mm. or something like that. I mean, we were using um, a Netspace browser and a uh, Netscape. Netscape, yeah. A Netscape yeah. browser and a, um, a Alta, Alta Vista was the, was ah, the okay. search engine. Um, huh. You know, so like uh, the whole world obviously changed in those few years. Like to go from late 90s, to early 2000s, which is sort of when I finished up with SAP and came back here and started my own company. But um, just, just in that period of time, everything changed. It, you got to think about it. That is such a tr- transformative time. Like 97, you had the Asia financial crisis. You had the dot-com bubble. Then you had 9-11, all in the space of like five years. And also for me, each one of those major events um, marks where I was in the world. So, so for example, during the Asian financial crisis, I was living in South Korea. Wow. Um, and then, uh, Jesus. Yeah, and then, and then during September 11, we'd just come back from America, and we were living in Singapore. Um, and a lot of our colleagues were American. And in fact, one of our colleagues was in uh, Washington uh, at the time. And um, yeah, we'd just been to New York and stuff. And so. Yeah, like for me, those major events, I can I can remember where we were and what we were doing. Obviously, everyone can, um, uh, but it sort of marked moments in your in your in your life and in your career. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you, is there a particular insight that stands out from your time, that thread before you got into the I guess you call it startup world or, or creating your own startups? Is there something that really stands out to you from that period? Again, for me, it's the people. So, because yeah. SAP was the largest enterprise company in the world, the, the story goes. It's a good story. Like just briefly, is that the story goes that somebody, I think Gartner or somebody, maybe one of their quadrants or whatever it was, or Fortune or someone like that, um, rated them as the number one. They called them back then inter enterprise software company. Okay. Um, they were the second largest software company in the world behind Microsoft, um, but they were rated 172 as e-commerce, right? Because they didn't okay. have any. Like the internet was just sort of becoming a thing, you know. Um, and our job 
was to get them from 172 to number one. Okay. That was it. So it took two and a half years. <laughs> wow. Um, and so that, so for me, it was the people. Like the people I met along that journey, I still keep in touch with to this day. Um, some of the people that I met in various countries um, on various projects, um, you know, they're people that are running the biggest companies in the world. Um, and they mentored me. They befriended me. You know, we became... Um, I don't know, Christmas card buddies, um, you know, and now now email and LinkedIn buddies. Um, and, and so for me, those people, and, and, you know, I actually ended up hiring them. Like some of those people yeah. that I worked with, we ended up hiring them at Ferocia or, or my other companies like Clear and whatever before we before we even started this. Yeah, well, th- those other companies are interesting. I, I would love to dig into all of them. You know, you got, uh, there was Saratoga there for a while, Clear, the Grain Exchange, there was Zudio, but now obviously we're talking about Ferocia and Up. Um I guess I think the the most interesting thing for me right now is how you fell into, but like because so much of what you did looking at those companies was B two B. If I'm not mistaken, would yeah. you agree with that? Yeah, so was Ferocia, like when it started. Yeah. Mm. So why? What really? What was the aha moment where you're like, okay, I have to start this up. I've got to do it. So, yeah, that's no, a very good question. <laughs> um, so, Ferocia is, in my humble opinion, the best business we've created out of, you know, 20 years of trying to create, or maybe 15 years of trying to create businesses. Um, so, it's like you... Why is that? Well, it's just that you make mistakes along the way, and you learn so from those corrects. mistakes, yeah. and you just get better as you go, um, and you meet new people, and you try new things, and, and all that sort of stuff. So, I think you it's the sum of our collective experience, I guess, is the best way to say it. Yeah. And and so when we started the business, it was not um, a specific project. It was how do we put together the best technology team that we could in the world and just do amazing things. Like was our sort of. We, I remember sitting around the table with Tomo. That was our that was our idea. And we'd had a business together before previously. So so it was like, like let's say we're both unemployed, you know, <laughs> and we're both sitting there saying, right, what's next? Um, and having breakfast at his place. And we're just sort of having a yarn. Um, and we said, you know, what do we love doing? And what was the best things that we've done before? And we said, you know, it's building the team and, and just doing something awesome. So if we can build great shit with great people in a great environment, wouldn't that be awesome? And that, so there was no specific project in mind we had been working on a bunch of different things you know you mentioned sort of grain exchange and i don't know financial services and whatever else so we had worked on other things together yeah. so we thought well you know let's raise some money let's build this amazing thing whatever and we were chatting with um at the time um the managing director at bendigo bank uh, mike hurst and um you know and he he just asked a question which which was you know could you guys do what you're doing with technology and stuff but for our, for our internet banking um you know like, is that something you'd be interested in and we're like that's really interesting because I personally had been very frustrated with um, internet banking, mobile banking that was huh. hardly existed. Um, and I even prepared ahead of the meeting some thoughts and ideas I had um, and talked to, through with Tomo about um, the branch of the future being your mobile phone, right? You know, um, and um, and so we sort of pitched that to Mike, and he was like, "Well, you know, we're out to tender at the moment um, for a mobile banking thing, and all the usual suspects were there: SAP, um, Sandstone, IBM. I don't know all the usual uh, backbase, all these companies that build you know um, banking systems and mobile banking technology. 
Um, and so we had to, like they're a big public company, you know, Bendigo Bank, fifth Massive. largest bank in Australia. Yeah. And so we had to basically demonstrate that we, as literally two people at the time, <laughs> you know, could, could build um, this amazing new, you know, internet banking thing. And it was mostly sort of born out of frustration. I'm getting to up. I just sort of like, that's how, no, sort no, of that's... Fer- you know, that's sort of how Ferocia sort of started. And so yeah. there was no specific project, hey, let's do this thing. It was like, let's just build this amazing team and then find a great place to work from, and then let's find a great project. Um, and it sort of very quickly morphed into, hey, let's build this thing for um, for Bendigo Bank. So Tomo and I literally jumped on the phone, you know, I'll probably say jump on the blower, you know, jumped on the fl- phone straight away and said, right, h- how do we um, how do we get these people? And like two of the people, the first two people I called were my mates from SAP, like two people that I'd worked with previously who were sort of, the, as far as I knew, like the best software developers. One of them taught me software development, you know. So I was like, yeah. these are the two best software developers I know. Let's get them in. So we got them in. And then we ran uh, rang a few other people that had worked with us in the past. Um, and one of them uh, was just happened to be, by coincidence, lived in Bendigo, you know. So, so we put together this team of about six people. And they're this amazing, like, group of people. And... You know, nobody had an employment contract or a salary or anything like that. It was just like, let's just, we're just to build this prototype. We've got to demonstrate to Bendigo to win this project, you know. So, so we got everyone together. Um, and it was a little. We found a pub in Fitzroy, and we got the top top floor of a pub. They had a sign up saying, "If you want to rent their room." So we, so I remember going in there, and Tomo said to them, Would, "Do you rent it out by the month?" And like normally they're used to renting it out for a bucks night or a wedding or so. And so like he's like, "Do you rent it out by the month?" And so we got the top floor of a pub in uh, in, uh, in in Fitzroy, Fitzroy. Um, and uh, and we had these six people. Um, and even then, I knew we were onto something like amazing. Uh, one of our very first employees um, was was a guy, Anson Parker, who's our, I call him our chief imaginer. He's our sort of head of product. Um, and Anson had a little office just down the road in Fitzroy. Okay. Um, and so I, I spent a lot of time working from his little office or up, upstairs at the pub. Um, and we basically built a prototype to, to, you know, and at the time it was more internet, like um, browser-based, like um, desktop banking than it was mobile. But, okay. but it very quickly transitioned into a mobile banking system. So, so without going into too much detail, that, that, that was the history of Ferocia and how we sort of got started. And then fast forward five years, we'd sort of taken Bendigo on this crazy journey. And, and Ferocia had gone on a crazy journey too because then we were, I don't know, 15 people or something or maybe 20 people or whatever. So, so the business had sort of grown and we'd been um, winning awards for the last sort of four years of um, you know, best mobile banking um, in Australia and all this stuff. And... Bendigo's customers had gone from 75,000 mobile customers to 750,000 monthly active users plus. Jesus. You know, so, so, and we like to think obviously in part that was because of the close knit relationship and the, and the great trust that we developed and all that sort of stuff, but also because it was friggin' awesome software. Like we had built the most amazing mobile banking system in Australia. Do you know, um, what was the name of the app? It wasn't called My Bank, was it? No. No. Okay. Because yeah. I just remember, like, we were chatting off air that I had Bendigo Adelaide Bank as a client before this, and they were, obs- yeah, they were obsessed with their apps and their software. And I was just thinking, wow, imagine if the- you were the one who built this thing that every time I met with this client, he was he was raving about how great it was. Yeah. So what what's ended up happening is that it is the best mobile and it's responsive it's responsive software so it works on desktop tablet and mobile okay um but it, it's totally amazing like most people are using mobile nowadays but but like i just wanted to fill those gaps in so that's sort of how ferocious started and then that's how uh, five years fast forward you know we had this amazing thing with bendigo bank so then we were chatting with bendigo and we were like how do we commercialize this was one of our objectives to sort of commercialize or whatever and we started chatting with uh, other banks about 
working out whether Ferocia could deliver software for other banks as well. And, and, and we were in Boston. Anson and I were in Boston, and we met with someone who was an executive at, at one of the Aussie banks, one of the big four. And he just said to us, look, um, you know, I'm based in Melbourne. Where are you guys based? Oh, we're based in Melbourne too. So, so we ended up sort of having a yarn and a beer and whatever. I don't drink beer, so I had like a lemonade. <laughs> uh, but then, then we came back to uh, Melbourne and we met with them and it turned out they were one of the big four banks and they wanted to build a digital bank in Asia. So we worked with them for from the time we met them to the time we stopped working with them was like two, two and a half years. Okay. And we the, the, the goal was to build a digital bank across 10 countries in Asia. Oh, um, wow. And everyone was in on it, so the usual suspects. And I, like, don't quote me on the exact names, but like McKinsey's or um, you know uh, IBM, SAP, whatever. I, everybody was wanted to be part of this thing because it would have been back in 2014, like one of the first sort of digital banks in the world. You know, um, Bank Simple was sort of um, you know the only real digital bank back then. So um, so we did that, and then it never launched. Like that, the, they got a new CEO, and the CEO basically sort of shut down that that project and, and reallocated really? the focus on, on other things. So I know the bank you're talking yeah. about now. So we don't name the bank, but we, yeah. we, we came back to Australia sort of, I guess, in a, in a sense, that project was run between sort of San Francisco, Melbourne, Hong Kong and Singapore. And, and we were spent a lot of time, a little bit in Hong Kong, but most mostly in Singapore. Um, and, then, uh, and then the executives sort of left that big bank and moved off to other, other big banks. And one of them was in Sydney and rang us up and said, hey, I loved working with you guys. She was our sponsor. So she's like, I love working with you guys when we're at this other bank, um, working on the Asia project. Would you be interested in doing the same sort of thing, but here in Australia? You know, we could build a digital bank for Australia. And I think this was 2016. So we're like, build a digital bank for Australia. That'd be amazing, you know? So let's do that. So we worked on that project for a year, year and a half. Um, and then again, um, it never went to customers. So I remember flying up to Sydney on the 20, around about the 22nd of December, as I recall, um, and we presented to the board executive, whatever the sponsors of the project, um, and they decided not to fund it and instead focus their energy on their sort of core banking or their CRM systems or, you know, whatever their back office systems are and not sort of build this digital bank. You can imagine by now we were pretty frustrated. Like this amazing company, Ferocia, is winning awards for what we've done with Bendigo Bank and then we just had a couple of false starts at trying to build a digital bank working with one of the big guys, you know. So then we went out to tender and we won a tender for the largest credit union in Australia to build their mobile bank. And so we sort of, sort of well, there's not like another, that's like third strike and you're out, you know. So we got to the point where we're like, let's just do this thing ourselves. Okay. Let's just launch a digital bank. Like, it can't be that hard. What do you need to launch a digital bank? And so we sort of, you know, we'd like put a business plan together, you know. So, so number one, we need $100 million just like to start with, like just yeah. $100 million in capital just to like have enough reserves or whatever, you know, just get started. It wasn't that easy to get a banking license, but you need to get a banking license. Um, and the last banking license for an Australian company was issued like, I don't know, 28 years ago, whatever. If we think about the banks, like we've got uh, ING, you know, was the most recent. You can think of there a foreign company, a Dutch bank, set up an Australian subsidiary. That was like 18 years ago, maybe. Yeah. Um, so, so it wasn't like there were a lot of banking licenses going around, but that was one of the challenges. Could we get a banking license? Could we raise 100 million? And we would need a core banking system, you know, general ledger, you know, you need to keep the debits and credits, whatever. And so we were pretty confident after the sort of four, four, five, maybe four years or whatever it was of, of, of working with the big banks and integrating with all of their core banking systems that we could get a core banking system up and running. After all, we're a software company, right? So yeah. we could either get one up and running or we could build one ourselves. That was sort of the, the, the philosophy there. $100 million, hard to raise $100 million in Australia. Exceptionally hard. But possible to get it, even if it's from, you know, Valley Investors or from Japan or from the UK or whatever. It's possible to get $100 million. It's not. It shouldn't be like the barrier to launching a digital bank. Um, but getting a banking license, 
like, how the hell are we going to do that? And there was no on-ramp or restricted banking license or whatever then. It just The journey back in sort of 2016 had just sort of started in the UK where they'd been doling out banking licenses because they changed the legislation three years earlier, right? So, so for us, we were seeing what was happening in the UK and we're like, that's going to happen in Australia, surely. Surely the government, you know, the regulators are going to step in and they're going to want to change the environment so that there can be more innovation and all that sort of stuff. But we were before that had happened yet. So we were telling our woes to Bendigo and chatting about it and talking to Mike and Marnie at the time, and they were like, why don't we do this together? Like, Bendigo have a banking licence, Bendigo yeah. have capital, Bendigo have a core banking system. Like, is it possible after working together for five years and developing trust and building the best mobile banking platform in Australia, is it possible then to work together again in a different model? So what we wanted to do was flip the entire thing on its head. So when we built the uh, mobile and internet banking systems for Bendigo, it was like we were a software company and we were sort of like, if you like, in inverted commas, like contracted to the bank. You know, like the bank, it was their product, it's their customers, and we were just a service provider, if you like, to them. So that's that sort of B2B stuff that you were talking about before. For us, we wanted to own the relationship with the customer. We don't have to own the customer per se, and, and we couldn't because we didn't have a banking license, but we wanted to own the relationship with them and we want the whole customer journey from the time that the customer finds out about us, so through marketing or whatever, and then signs up for an account and then goes through the journey of being a customer for customer support and offboarding, like the whole journey we wanted Ferocia to be able to deliver that. Okay. And so that was like flipping the whole thing. And so we had these chats with Mike and Marnie at the time is that could Ferocia lead, manage, design, build, implement, support a digital bank? and leverage the relationship with Bendigo? And the answer is yes, of course, because we're alive now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's sort of how we, it's a long way around, but that's sort of how we came about to first develop the trust, uh, then develop the system that became, well, we've got you know, 1.7 million customers at Bendigo and about 800,000 monthly active users on the platform and do billions of dollars every month, blah, blah, blah. So how do you, how do, how do you go through that journey in order to then build up to working with these big banks, trying to build a digital bank, and then get frustrated and say, how do we do it ourselves, and then partner with Bendigo? And so Ferocia as a technology company and Bendigo as the fifth largest retail bank in Australia, you put those two together and now what we have is up and up is... Uh, we, we, the way we say it is a technology-led bank. So, so we yeah. think about technology-led banking, which is ferocious leading, rather than um, being banking or bank-led technology. And so, I, I try to think about what bank in the world, even when I was working with them at SAP or whatever, what bank in the world has ever delivered great technology? And they're few and far between. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying that as a bank, it's a different mindset. It's hard. You're not a technology company, and, and actually doing that is a challenge. And so a lot of the time, big banks will bring in third parties, software vendors, consulting firms, whatever, and try and do the best they can with the tools they have. Yeah. It's just the the fundamental capitalization structure <clears throat> of a bank means that, and unfortunately, you know, like you've got to think about the size of these these legacy banking systems as well, that the, the bulk of the R&D nowadays just gets done by external companies and the bulk of this, the force is customer facing people, yep. which is um, unfortunate because if if more organisations like Up come along, they're going to find in about five years they're going to be in a bit of a pickle. I um, mean, I think it's it's that that transition is happening right now. Yeah, I mean, you, we've seen it in the UK. But it was important. Yeah, absolutely. But so the way, like, I, how many people have a Monzo or Revolut account? Well, I was about to say. So if you take the top five digital banks in the UK, um, it's just rough numbers. Add them all together, they're the fifth biggest bank in the UK now, right? Now yep. that's within three, three or four years. 
So if, if that's the rapid change that we've seen in the UK market within, um, you know, and there's lots of stats, like 15% of new signups are coming to Monzo. Um, uh, the two the, of the four biggest switching banks. So every I think month or every quarter or whatever, the the UK publish the um, number of switches because of their switch guarantee that they have over there. We don't have it here, um, but so you can actually see how many customers have switched banks, right? Um, and so two of the four biggest switching banks in the UK are Monzo and Starling. So, okay. so you can see that that just in a short period of time, three or four years, that the whole market has shifted, um, and those digital banks now are a force to be reckoned with. Um, not yet individually, not any one of them, uh, but collectively, that movement is having an impact on the way the big banks respond, the way they build technology, the way they roll out product, the way they think about solutions, the way they engage with customers. That hadn't yet happened in Australia until October last year when uplaunched. Mm-hmm. And I'm particularly thinking about product that makes a bank a force to be reckoned with. And you've said it in interviews in the past that um, this will take time, but I guess the thing that will make it really accelerate will be things like credit, whether it's credit cards, lending, unsecured loans, it might be share trading. How are you thinking about I guess there were so many questions I had here and I feel like when I reread it, looking at it in hindsight, it's basically what I'm asking you in three different ways is what is the strategy? Like how are you thinking about this for the next three to five years? Yeah. So I think it's important maybe to set the tone of strategy before Mm. going to the detail. So for us, um, our goal in the next few years would be to build the equivalent of the fifth largest bank in Australia. You've got to have a big hairy goal. But more importantly, that's a very vague sort of goal, right? So, so more importantly, what does that mean? For us, um, we're going really hard to be the number one bank in Australia for under 35s. Okay. Now, with that in mind, we look at, say, our, um, our current customers. So we, ha- we have announced publicly that we have over 100,000 customers. Um, you know, people ask me all the time, how fast is it growing and, um, um, you know, like h- how, how do you sustain that growth and all those sort of things. Putting that aside, if we continue to grow at the current rate, it's possible over time that we become the fifth biggest bank in Australia. And it's just a comparison metric because Bendigo already is the fifth biggest bank in Australia, right? Yeah. So, so I'm not saying it necessarily makes sense as, 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 a, as a business model, but, um, but let's say we, uh, we, we, we did that. Um, what, what are we trying to achieve? Well, if we're trying to achieve being the number one bank for under 35s, um, then that sets a framework for the, the type of products that we might want to deliver. Because your average person under 35 is not going to be in the market for a mortgage, necessarily. The average person under 35 is probably not going to be very sophisticated when it comes to credit. Um, the average person under 35 is probably not going to be running a business yet. You know, so, mm-hmm. so, so it just frames the way we think about the products that we bring to market and the innovation that we want to drive. But then more than that, we also think about where do we want to be. And a lot of digital banks raise venture capital, do an IPO or, or sell to another bank or whatever it is they do, um, and they have a fairly short-term horizon. Now, ours may change over time. And at the moment, we're you know really um, we're really exploring growth and, and thinking about how we sustain what we've what we've created, um, and so it might change. But the current view is that you got to have a ten year, twenty year, fifty year, hundred year plan. Like if you want to be the fifth biggest bank in the country, you can't just say okay, we'll just do that in two or three years. It's like that is a long journey. So what we can do is we can sign up those young customers, and our largest age group of customers today is nineteen, and fifty percent of our customers are aged between sixteen and twenty four. So, so the first thing you might say is, well, if all your customers, or fifty percent of them, are between sixteen and twenty-four, how do you monetize them? That's what people always say, right? Well, it doesn't really matter because if you take them on the journey, 
And the journey for us is a 10, 20, 30 beyond journey. So in the next 10 years, all of those 19-year-olds will be 29. In the next 10 years, so 20 years later, they'll be 39. So eventually those people are going to want mortgages. Eventually those people are going to want insurance. They're going to be doing share trading. They're going to want superannuation. In fact, our customers today will be the titans of industry in 20 years from now. They'll be the people running the companies in Australia. So if we can grow up as a bank with them and help power their lives, then that's all we need for a strategy. We uh-huh. don't need to be any more detailed than that. Yeah. That's a brilliant way to think about it. And I, I know that you've always been a product-centric thinker. I, I guess I've seen that in many interviews that you've done, that principally that is the fundamental first principle for you. Um how, when did, how early did that come along to you and how do you sort of ingrain that today now? As in, not only are you a technology-led financial service company, but you know, do you make sure that your budgets only account for X percent in marketing and the bulk of it in product development? Like, How do you think about ingraining it into your day-to-day and week-to-week? I think about it a lot. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's not an easy, there's no silver bullet. Well, there's not an easy answer. Um, but the way I've sort of settled on it in recent times, and I spent a lot of time in the last seven years or so working hand-in-hand with Anson, right? Like Anson is our head of product. As I said, I call him the chief imaginer. The way I say it is that we pay him to think, <laughs> right? And, and it sounds like a, a dream job, but it's actually it's a very difficult job. Um, but, a lot of pressure. Yeah, well, what I love is the creativity and thinking about things differently. So if you're asking, you know, what is our product strategy, the, the way I'm describing it at the moment, I did a, a conference. Actually, Anson was traveling overseas, so I just stepped in for him. So I was just like a pretend Anson for the day. Um, but what I did is it was at Web Directions. And what I, what I realized in the green room, like I had to change the slides because it hadn't, it hadn't dawned on me yet to answer your question, is that engagement is our product. Mm-hmm. Our product is not a financial service. Financial services power your life. Financial services are a bunch of things that you need to buy a house, to pay for education, to travel, to buy an iPad, to bring up your kids, to pay for education. All those things are things that you want to do in your life. And it's the old, you know, do you drill a hole? Do you need the drill or do you need the hole? You know, like those sort of questions. Is that if you think about like the old sort of, I noticed on your bookshelf you have like Elon Musk, right? And I, 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 like, um, I like Tesla and I drive a Tesla and all that sort of stuff. Um, I'm very passionate about the, the way of thinking. And so for me... If engagement is our product, then anything we build is about how do we engage with our customers' lives? How do we make their lives easier? How do we help them with automation? How do we help them achieve their life goals? Mm. Think about it like that. Then the financial services become, uh, instead of being products, they become services. Yeah. Um, and so those services can then power people's lives. So right now- when you, Tools in a toolkit. Yeah. So, so right now when you sign up for UP, you don't go through a sign-up process to get a, a transactional account and then another sign-up process to get a savings account and yes. then another sign-up process to get a, 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 you know, a, a digital wallet and then another sign-up process. That, that's not how it is. You sign up for an up account. You download the app. You sign up for an up account and then you're an up customer. You're an upsider. And then you get whatever it is we deliver through that app, right? And, and at the moment, we deliver four products through that app. So you'll get a high-interest saver. We sort of nowadays, they call them an interest-bearing saver because <laughs> the, the interest <laughs> rates are so low. But, uh, but you know, you get an interest-bearing account. You get a transactional account, you get a... Um, uh, Roundup. Yeah, or you get a digital wallet. Yeah. Um, so, so in terms of like products, you're getting three or four products um, all in one. You, you, you don't have to go and sign up for another product. So when we launch... Yeah, yeah so when we I, launch... I absolutely hate that yeah. as a banking customer. Yeah, so those things that you mentioned, like when we launch um, international money transfers or when we launch... Um, a credit product or when we launch a mortgage or whatever whatever else we look to do in the future, as we do those things, they should be seamlessly integrated into your life and seamlessly integrated into the app. They shouldn't be discrete products that are sort of created 
priced and sold. They should actually be something that is uh, part of the product. So, so just to summarise that, so and to go back to where I started, to me, when I stepped in for Anson and had to think about this stuff quite deeply, I, I sort of emerged. I was in the green room, before, you know, waiting to go on stage and like making my slides, um, and and it occurred to me that engagement is our product, and then everything else follows. What what does engagement mean to you though? How do you even measure that? Well, is it time on the platform? Is it amount of transactions? Is it how much? Now, what it is for me is a relationship that we develop. So up as a up as a as a company, up as a brand, up as something that stands for for something. What what do we stand for, and what do we mean to our customers? Mm. And then how do our customers engage with us? Right. So so right now we see people walking down the street. I'm walking over to your place, like coming down here before, and I walk past someone in Collins Street wearing an up t shirt. You know, like that gives me an amazing feeling of satisfaction that um, you know who walks around in a bank t-shirt who wears a bank hat who yeah. has a bank sticker on their laptop like but all the up customers do and why like why is that so there's something magical about the way that we respect our customers the way we treat our customers the way we think about our product there's something magical there and so that's to me is what I mean when I say engagement so when we and there's lots of examples but when we launched our welcome pack most banks would say, it's too expensive what you want to do, don't do it. Find a cheaper way to do it or whatever. Um, most banks will send you a, a sort of plain clothes envelope, you know, just a really vanilla envelope that's the cheapest with a stamp or a prepaid stamp. They can buy that in discount. Um, and a trifold A4 piece of paper with a bit of glue on it, right? So we looked at that and Classic. said, okay, well, how much does that cost, right? And you yeah. add up all those costs and it comes to a few dollars, right? So, yeah. so it might be $5, $6, whatever it comes to. So it comes to a few dollars. So that then became our constraint. That became our goal. How do we build the most amazing welcome experience for a customer that's tangible, that's real? Like we print our welcome pack on a centuries-old Heidelberg press. Yeah. I talk about printing and everything, right? It's embossed. It's 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 printed on, um, you know, like coaster stock, yeah. um, the most expensive stock you can buy. It's fully recycled. It's fully recyclable. You know, all of those sort of things. We think about all of that, and then we create this amazing, tangible, welcome experience for a digital bank. But the constraint we set ourselves was that we wanted it to be the same cost or less than what it would cost to do it the normal way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I mean by engagement, because now when someone opens the envelope that they get from up, it's a portrait envelope instead of a horizontal envelope. It, 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 uh, it, you, you pull out the card and there's no uh, number or no name on the front of it. Yeah. Um, it's a bright color. You flip it over. It's got your details. It slides out of the pack. We hand-carved the first version of that pack in our office, and we literally got some coasters from a wedding, and then we got a blade, and we cut it out, and, and we engineered the way that the card slides in and out of the piece of cardboard. might sound ridiculous, right? But 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 that's what I mean by engagement. Like We care about those details, and then you can extrapolate that to the digital product. The digital product, the customer experience, the way you interact, the way that, for example, with up, there's no username and password. You don't have to log in. You're just always logged in. It's always on banking. Um, you know, the security model we have, um, the ease of use, um, the way you can seamlessly save money, the way that you can slide between screens without using a menu. Um, like, there's so many subtle, simple things that's like years of thinking have gone into making that. And that, to me, is engagement. I, um, <clears throat> I've actually signed up for up. I've got, <clears throat> pardon me, a card. I got it probably a month or so ago. I do love that the uh, the old maybe just because I come from that back that printing background. I I don't know. I always find myself like smelling fresh new paper. <laughs> I just love the smell of it. But yeah, it's it's a brilliant experience, and I can see that you guys did it first, and everyone in this neo banking field has basically copied it. Of course, yeah. So the trick for us now is to be sustainable, is to continue to innovate. Yeah. So so now when well, you well, that that's an important yeah. point. Just maybe yeah. you preface yeah. your point about that is that 
So Snapchat, when Snapchat came out, everyone believed, uh, or in its IPO, it said that it would differentiate based on innovation. So in an area where it's heating up, you've got these 86, 1 million, blah, 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 stupid name, companies, Ninja, uh, Archer, who we've had on the show. How do you really, like, I know you're customer first, but how do you think about that in particular? Yeah, so, so for me, um, uh, continuing to innovate and stay ahead of the game is important. So we're the first to launch. Okay. We're the first cloud-hosted bank, retail bank in Australia. We're the first with instant Apple Pay in-app. We're the first with Google Pay in-app. We're the first with merchant details. We're the first with, um, you know, um, uh, SKU data on your receipt, your digital receipt. I mean, it's great to be the first at all these things, but the only way we can do that is to create a sustainable delivery model in order to create that engagement. So the engagement I talked about is the, is the, is the product. And then how do you deliver that product? The way we do it is we have created a, you know, what you might call a product pipeline or an engineering pipeline that we can imagine, design, build, test, and deploy our products so quickly that no one else can compete. In fact, technology companies would struggle to, to deploy as, as quickly as we do. What, why is that? Um, well, we've been doing this for a very long time, and we have the very best people in the world that we know of, and put them in a room together and have created a way to take things from idea to customers um, very, very quickly. So our goal when we started up was for to take the experience we have with Ferozia and be able to deliver a banking product to customers every single day five times. That was our idea, right? How do you deliver software to customers five times a day so that every time they log into their bank, it's been upgraded? Mm-hmm. How do you do that without interrupting the customer so there's no outages, you don't take the system down, you don't plan to have the system off at Sunday, you know, midnight to 6 a.m., you know, whatever. Um, yeah, so no, no downtime is the idea. So, so how do you have no downtime, how do you deliver innovation, and how do you deliver that to customers on a regular basis? So for us, it was creating with this engineering mindset. It's what I call now the excellence of everything. So you have to be really, really good at software design. You have to be really, really good at visual design. You have to be really, really good at user experience. You have to be really, really good at technology engineering. You have to be really, really good at security. You have to be really, really good at compliance. All the different things that you have to be good at. So you've got to be good at all those things. And what we've found is that other neobanks in the world and other technology companies in the world and other... I don't know, fintechs or whatever, are usually really good at one or two of those things. If they're really super, they might be good at two or three of them. But to be good at all of them is a really, really hard thing to do. And it's really defensible in terms of a sort of competitive advantage. So for us, earlier this year in about February, we measure how often we ship software out to production. Mm-hmm. So for us, or, you know, it's easy to say to customers, but actually technically not all releases go to customers. So yeah. we ship everything to production and then certain releases go to customers. So for us, we measure that. And uh, in February this year, we were achieving 12 times a day is our average. 12 sh- shipments? 12 shipments to wow. a, a day to production, right? So at the moment, our average over ever since we launched, so we've been in market now for 11 months. So uh, in the whole time, so let's say in our first year, our average right now today is six times a day. Jeez. What what percentage of that is new product versus tech debt or bug testing yeah, so or the, fixing bugs? Yeah, so yeah, so the easiest way to describe it is the tree of up, right? Like our public roadmap. That's right. Because, I had a look at that. Yeah, yeah, so a lot of people will say, um, yeah, yeah, that's fine. No, the two, let's say, criticisms we get of that. The first one is nobody wants their software updated that quick, and that's just total bullshit. Um, if, it's, if it's updated um, seamlessly... And if it's always improving and always getting better, everyone everyone loves that. Yeah, everyone loves that. Who says that? I don't know. People who don't <laughs> don't get it. Um, and and then the second criticism we get is, <laughs> oh yeah, but these are just small bug fixes or small updates or whatever. 
actually we do a lot more of the, than we release to production. We, we, we do so many updates so often that we could do, you know, 50 or 100 or more in a day, um, uh, but not all of those will end up going to customers. And yes, yeah, some of them are bug fixes, some of them are small enhancements, some of them are improvements, whatever. But if you look at the tree of up, what it shows you is we only published it maybe, what, six months ago. And in that time, nearly every single branch and nearly every single leaf on the tree of up, and for those that haven't seen it, it's like you know, our public roadmap, very transparent. It shows you when we're going to deliver something. It has three different sort of um, uh, visual representations. Yeah. So it shows you what we have already delivered, which is sort of a full coloured in, um, sort of we, it's, it's called sunset red, the colour, like, or some people call it salmon. But So it's sunset red and it's coloured in, and that means we've delivered it. If it's dotted, that means it's currently under development. And if it's grey, that means you know, we're, we're going to work on it soon or you know, it'll, be, it'll be coming next. Um, and if you look at it, originally everything was grey. And then it went to dotted, and then now most of the tree of up is sunset red. And yeah. so basically, we have delivered practically everything that's on it. Um, and and now we're looking to do perhaps a bit of a refresh. It's springtime, so it's time for the tree of up to grow and to shoot you know shoot some new branches. And so now is an opportunity for us to come back. So, so the easiest way to answer that question is the things that we released in the last twelve months have been material. Mm. So we were probably, to my knowledge, one of the only or one of the very few banks to launch that you couldn't get your money out. You could put your money in, but you couldn't make payments with it yet, right? And that was a bold move, but very quickly, within sort of a month, we'd released our payment system. And and since then, we've released, obviously, the roundups, we've released the boosts, we've released the high-interest saver, we've released the um, uh, the BPAY, uh, so many things that we've released that um, it's material. So these updates, yes, there's obviously the bug fixes, yes, there's the new ideas. One, one really passionate example for me is that a customer contacted us, so we have this tool that we developed called Talk to Us, and you can talk to us through the Up app, right? which is predominantly our main channel for talking to our customers. So talk to us and social media. So on Talk To Us, a customer came through and said, hey, I might have been on Twitter, I can't remember, but they said to us, hey, I want this new feature, whatever, whatever it was they were asking for. So we just quickly did that. And then within an hour, the customer had it in their hand and they were tweeting or Facebooking about it or whatever, wow. saying, oh my God, this is amazing. Have you ever seen a bank do this? And to us, it was kind of trivial because the customer raised it as an issue. It went into the development pipeline. Somebody picked it up because they had some spare time. You know, they'd been doing whatever and they just saw it and they went, okay, I'll just fix that. And they just fixed that. And then they added that sort of piece of functionality and then it came out into the customer's hand and it was literally like an hour later and the customer was completely blown away because they were like how is that even possible but the way it's possible is that we have a continuous deployment pipeline yeah so it's one of those intangibles it's quite amazing because other people will see that and think wow i can actually because a lot of the time uh when it comes to product feedback a lot of people would just self-censor they just go well if i like if what am i going to do spend 15 minutes and never gets put into anything yeah so i can see that would be monumentally different yep. and quite impactful. And we can't do everything. Like people contact yeah. us every day. We get hundreds of maybe even more than a thousand, I don't know the exact number, but hundreds of messages a day of people saying, can you do this, can you do that, can you do this, can you do that? The tree of up serves a few different purposes. One is that it holds us accountable to what we say we're going to do. It provides that transparency so you can see what we're going to do. But another is that it actually helps abate that sort of tidal wave of people asking for things. So, for example, before we launched BPAY, Everybody was asking us every day through all the different channels, whether it be you know social media or talk to us or whatever. When are you going to have BPay? 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 At the moment, it is when are you going to have joint accounts? When are you going to have joint accounts? When are you going to have joint? When are you going to do a mortgage? When are you going to do a mortgage? When are you going to have credit cards? When are you going to have credit? And, and you get these questions over and over and over again. And now, as a rule, the answer is I always give the answer because we're very friendly and everything. But you know, here's the answer: This is when we're planning to do it. But hey, have a look at the tree of up because next time, instead of asking that question or instead of self-censoring and not asking the question, people are actually engaging with the tree of up. Yeah. Yeah, look, there's so many features I want to... I mean, I'm sure you get shit all the time. Um, but I'm, I'm wary as well that once we get over an hour, 
you got to get out of here. But before we get to that, I'm thinking particularly about the future and, and where you think banking is going with the fact that you guys were sort of the first ones to put the the flag in the ground. There's others chasing you now. Uh, you've been – you've sort of shown that the relationship banks will have is as a technology-led financial service that most services will sort of be done in partnership with others like the the afterpay element that you guys integrated transaction rich data all that sort of stuff how do you see banking changing over the next few years in particular like is there something really that stands out to you or is it one of those things where you don't know all you know is that you need to increase engagement and you need to increase uh you know the 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 app for the customer, so to speak. I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I think we have a view. It doesn't mean our view is right. I yeah. think we have a view of what the future looks like. We're very very excited at the moment about some of the new things that we're going to announce soon. Like we haven't, so I don't want to like jump the gun, but like we we think that we've um, uh, identified some areas of banking that have been very well underserviced. Um, and there's an opportunity for us to change the way people think about it, right? I think we're already on that journey and we're already sort of doing that. So I can see banking changing um, to be more service-based rather than product-based. That's an obvious okay. one. Um, and we've seen that, you know, take Apple, for example, you see that happening right now, sort of migrating from just being a hardware company to being a services company. I think yeah. we see something similar happening in banking. We also uh, see that people don't necessarily want to engage with a financial service. So the way I explain it to people is nobody ever asked me for banking. Nobody ever comes up to me and say, hey, can you help me bank or can you do my banking better? Like, that's not a question people ask. The question people ask is, wow, how do I invest my money or how do I save my money or how do I find out more about what I'm spending or how do I change my habits or imagine if my behavior was blah. So for example, we get a lot of people Obviously, it's been the most popular book in Australia for the last few years, so we get a lot of people asking us about the Barefoot Investor and saying, hey, when are you going to launch another account? Because with Up, I can have a transactional account and I can have you know heaps of savers. That's great. When are you going to have another transactional account? We think we might have cracked the nut there for people that they're asking the wrong question. The question they should be asking is, how do I segregate you know, my money? How do I identify my spend? How do I um, create more discipline in my, in my spending behavior? Not... How do I get another piece of plastic? Yeah. Um, and so people are sort of conditioned to ask those questions of their bank. Hey, I'm going to buy a house, right? I need a mortgage. Because it's how you currently solve X exactly. problem. So, yeah. so the best example people give, I think, is nobody ever asked for an iPad, and yet and nobody ever asked for a touch phone with the iPhone, but they became the fastest selling consumer goods in history. Yeah. Um, and so nobody's going to ever ask for what a bank um, could be for the future. And so a lot of the rhetoric we get from neobanks and digital banks all over the world is basically um, ask your customer. Customers will tell you what they want. Actually, customers are part of the equation. Customers need to be completely centric to what it is you do. And you need to service the customer, engage with the customer, and deliver the best value you can for the customer. It doesn't mean that the customer knows what the future of banking is. Yeah. It's so funny. That is like the cliche line from neobanks at the moment. Um, And it just makes me think, well, neobanks are just basically banks that have lots of software developers instead of uh, business bankers. Yeah. Um, so it's a very valid point. And you mentioned before about Apple Pay. I think to highlight the impact of what you guys could potentially be doing is there's a video on YouTube and it was it was called, it came out very recently, it's, it was how Apple took over Japan. And it was in relation to Apple Pay and the Suica card because I go to Japan a lot um for jobs, I like going there. We're actually planning. We were planning on getting married there, but it, 
you know, uh, that increasingly is logistically becoming a nightmare. However, um, it, it really, that video, people have to go watch it. We'll put in the links because it really highlights how the phone is now becoming, that mobile-first approach is really, I can see in five years from now, no one will really carry a wallet. Even for IDs and whatnot, I can really see that becoming the new normal. And you can see that in Japan in oh, that video. I, yeah, I'd be very interested to see whether or not, um, you know, how far down the path we go. So for, yeah. so, for example, not carrying a wallet is is, is, is one thing. Another thing is um, people living their lives by subscription, you know, like mm. um, at the moment... You, yeah, Kevin Kelly talks about that a yeah, lot. Yeah, like you get pretty grumpy when you have to pay fees for things, but you're happy to subscribe to a, a service that delivers value. Yeah, particularly when you just put your thumb on it. And, and, That's it. Yeah. So, so I think the way we're consuming things digitally is that if you think about this, that... Um, in the past, you know, if you like, like Back to the Future, you probably like the original and not the other sequels. But, <laughs> but if you look at say Back to the Future three, they go back to eighteen eighty seven, right? Um, and is eighteen eighty seven? Or I think it is. Might, ah. have been, might have been earlier. But anyway, they go back to a, a time of year old, um, and you walk into the Wells Fargo branch, um, and the only difference is that instead of a pen, they have a quill. Um, but they still have the bars on the window, and instead of coins, they're using gold or whatever, you know, like gold bullion or whatever it is. But actually, nothing's changed in banking. So, so now we still have those branches, and we still have those forms. And all we did was take those forms and put them on the internet. And instead of using a quill, we we moved to a pen that was on a chain, and then we moved it from a pen on a chain to a form on the internet that you type it in, but it's still a form. For us, it's like how do you take the next step where you actually digitize the interaction that you have with your with your money and you digitize the interactions that you have beyond just taking that same approach to banking. Yeah. And so that's just it's a bit sort of philosophical but but it's, but it's just, important. It's very important and then having yeah. a technology mindset and, and for me I just want to add this when I say technology led a lot of people get confused and think it's a bunch of engineers or software developers or whatever right and that's fine but actually it's not well, like technology led is Uber are disrupting taxis. Largest taxi company in the world, not a taxi company, software company. Um, you know, Skype is the largest telecommunications company in the world, but not a telecommunications company. They're a technology company. Amazon's the largest retailer in the world, but they're not a retailer. They're just a technology company. So, so if you look at uh, those type of companies that have had a material impact on a particular industry and completely disrupted it, they're technology companies taking a technology mindset. And the technology mindset encompasses design, user experience, uh, design thinking, user experience, customer centricity, engagement, engineering, security, all of those user experience, all those sort of things that, that encompass a company that is focused solely on delivering the best customer outcome. Mm. So for me, that's the disruption that'll happen in banking. And I don't know where it'll end. I don't know, like, I, it's yeah. hard to, I don't have a crystal ball. But what I do know is that as a technology company, Ferocia is able to, through partnering with Bendigo, obviously, and Bendigo exceptionally brave to partner with a technology company like Ferocia to try and help drive this change and try and lead this change. So I can't say where it will end, but I can say that we're on the journey right now. Um, and I think that journey is about design. It's about customers. It's about experience. It's about engagement. And it's about services. What it's not about is financial products. Yeah. Look, this has been uh, very interesting. We do need to jump into some ra- rapid fire questions. There's, You can see I've got pages and pages of notes. There's all sorts of things that I've missed here, and someone's going to. I don't want to go over either. <laughs> someone, someone's going to crack the shit to yeah. me. But one thi- thing I've been thinking about, I'm going to say, I do like your um your approach to comms and PR. Like, just don't tell people what's happening is the best way to go about it because then then they're not disappointed. And you see that with so many neo banks where they're saying, you know, we've got this thing coming out and, uh, and it's still coming out and oh, it's still coming out. Don't worry, it's definitely coming out. Um. I, which I quite like. The the twenty four seven supports really interesting. 
Um, and now I fundamentally understand where you're going because there's so many services that I want, but I realize that, you know, like I'm nearly 30, that there's things that you're going to put in there, like before I'll, you know, ever get my mortgage capabilities or credit card with rewards points and blah, blah, blah. So a lot of this makes a whole lot more sense. I guess I'm intrigued as to how, how do you see things like, blockchain and cryptocurrency fitting into this sort of stuff, the future of neobanking at least. Yeah, so just on that point about um, talking about things before they happen, we, we tend to talk about things after we've released them, right, yeah. obviously. Yes. So, so, we, so we publish the tree of up so you know what's coming yeah. so that we're accountable, um, but then we won't make a fuss about it until we actually deliver it. Um, yeah. So I think that's really important. It's just a subtle point, but I think it is really important. Yeah. Um, so in terms of crypto and, and that sort of stuff, to me, like I had a, um, you know, there was a breakfast with um, Jack Dorsey, you know, um, founder and CEO of Square, and just recently in Melbourne, and it was just awesome because, um, you know, he's a huge um, sort of Bitcoin advocate. Um, and you know, and, and a lot of people Bitcoin this or blockchain that or you know whatever. But 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 what he was talking about was that it actually takes, I guess, a collective um, effort, a concerted effort, to make these things successful. Um, and a huge company like Square, actually taking a particular view on that in the market will make it happen. Like things don't happen by accident. So mm. They happen because someone champions them and brings them to market. Elon Musk, you know, electric cars. Everyone asks him the question now, um, you know, like, oh, what do you think about all these new competing electric cars? He doesn't think any anything about them because his business plan was to increase the advent of electric cars. Like, so, you know, increase the adoption. So, so for him, all these electric, all these, traditional companies building electric cars, that's great. So I feel like the same thing with blockchain and Bitcoin and any crypto at all is that there's a whole bunch of innovative early adopters, early players. As that sort of continues to build momentum and everything and become the norm, then we'll see the banks adopting it. Like right now for a lot of the banks, it's very risky, it's very different, it's very strange and everything. But I think that what we'll see is that it sort of has a natural, so there'll be those early adopters and then there'll be a natural sort of time when it sort of crosses the chasm, you know, and, Mm. and it just starts to become the norm. To me, I also think about it very differently. So if I think about just blockchain in general, um, I think about it like a distributed database, yeah. like rather than um, you know powering necessarily a financial service. Yeah. Um, uh, and obviously, Bitcoin is the thing that you know made it sort of famous, um, and so people immediately associate it with you know a financial service, and so we get that question a lot. But actually, if you think about it as distributed ledger for, for money, or if you think about it as distributed database for data, um, what, what are the use cases that we could have that would be powered by that capability in the future? And all over the world, we're seeing thousands and thousands of projects, both in financial services and outside of financial services, adopting these technologies. Mm. So for me, again, I don't really have the answer, but I think it is part of the puzzle. It's, it's part of this, this, this no single company or person controlling things and for them to be distributed is a logical way to go. Yeah. Um, having a, um, a, a sort of finite value of something so that it, um, it can be distributed fairly is another really interesting concept. Um, so yeah, I, don't, I don't have the answer, but I know that it's part of the journey. Yeah. And mm. it's, it is very interesting because it, it's really a, an argument between do you want your monetary policy to be distributed or do you want it to be centralized? That's fundamentally uh, what all of this comes down to. There's also like a lot of people speculate on whether is it an asset class, uh, you know, like is it is it its own thing? I think it, it's, it's a mechanism more than it is a new type. Like it's both a new type of asset and a technology. Um, it's, it's interesting. I, I wonder whether in future when we have up bank accounts, whether... Uh, you'll primarily be getting paid in Bitcoin or you'll be primarily getting paid in uh, Aussie coin or something like that. Because, you know, the RBA has floated the idea 
of uh, creating their own digital currency. But most of the banking system is digital anyway. Yeah, you know, I mean, Canada have already done it, and so yeah. and other places too. So, so it's possible that that could happen. I think the way that we would think about it at the moment, anyway, is that we would just want to be able to support that. Mm. You know, like so, from our perspective, um, we might not necessarily be the drivers of the adoption of that. Uh, we might for certain things, but for us. Uh, we have this thing we call roam free, so you can sort of you know be able to travel the world um, sort of fee free um, and, uh, and and not have to think about your sort of your banking and financial services. Um, and we want to do similar things here in Australia. So so if you can if you can um, uh, sort of uh, think about the conversion of different currencies and think about making money transfers and think about all the different things that you do. To me, we should liken digital currencies to the existing ones. So whether it be US dollar or Great British Pounds or Japanese yen, it could also be Bitcoin or Ethereum or any others, um, Aussie coin, whatever it might be. Um, and, and they should be interoperable. You know, like yeah. it should be if I'm exchanging my digital currency for fiat, it should actually the on-ramp to be able to do that, and then the exchange of them should be seamless. And yeah. you know, we've obviously seen some innovation in that space here in Australia and overseas. Um, and and I just think that that to me is logical, but it's almost a little bit ahead of its time because in order for anything to be adopted in the banking space, highly regulated, a lot of you know incumbent players and all that sort of stuff, um, it needs broad adoption. So at the moment, the thing we're sort of talking about it off topic, but the thing we've been talking about is uh, open banking. So so yeah, you know, yeah. so so everyone asks me all the time. When, when's open banking going to happen? What are your views? And it's all this there. Stuff? It's on GitHub. Right. It's ha- it's it's available now. If you log into yeah. GitHub, you can see the standards. But who's going to implement it? And then what customers are going to be able to take advantage of their consumer data rights? That's going to so so eighty five percent of the Australian population bank with the big four banks. So when the so my answer is when the big four banks adopt the consumer data rights as a standard, and when they implement it in a satisfactory way that you know delivers a great customer experience, then that is when. It'll be implemented. Not not when a hundred different startups do it, because those hundred different startups collectively probably represent one percent of the market. So so they can they can be a catalyst for change. But actually, we need the big players to adopt that that new legislation and, and implement it in a really meaningful way for for open banking to be anything in Australia. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. That open banking thing is a real like meme, isn't it? Um, in the industry, I mean, there there are some interesting developments like the MPP. Platform? Do you guys have MPP set up yet yeah. at all? Yeah. So, so we, we so for us, sure, we built that with Bendigo's with the <laughs> first hundred percent compliant NPP bank in Australia. Um, you know, to do an OSCO end to end both ways. Okay. Um, and then for UP, we built it um, NPP OSCO native, right? So, so all payments nice. in UP are real time, uh, or they call it near real time with or near instant with yeah. with um, with OSCO with NPP. But we also built the capability that if the other bank doesn't support it, because as it turned out when we launched UP, I know it was only eleven months ago, but when we launched up, not all the banks, including the, some of the big banks, um, supported the NPP. So um, yeah, they're absolutely useless. Yeah, so they fall back. So in up, what we can do is actually fall back to a traditional payment, which could take overnight or two or three days to clear or whatever. Um, so what we do is we we build for real time native, and then fall back with redundancy. Okay, very interesting. Yeah, it's it's a funny. I remember. Um, you know, some of the big four, they didn't allow it for business bank banking accounts first. So, they only allowed retail customers. And then they've all still got <clears> – <throat> what have they all got? I feel like there's a $10,000 cap there somewhere. Um, yeah, it's just a massive pain in the ass. But it is very, very interesting because it is near instant. Like, near near instant is is basically what it is, isn't it? It's pretty um, amazing. It's pretty pretty – Fascinating. But I look, I'll, just, I'll just say this: um, I, 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 it is amazing, and we're obviously huge supporters, and that's why we, we we do it up. But if you look around the world at real-time banking systems, and you say, "Well, you know, the UK were a bit late to the game; Australia were a little bit later," and you know, the US is still getting their game on. Go to Japan. Mm. Japan have had it since the seventies. 
So you got to ask yourself the question: Is that um, is that rapid adoption? Like people are getting all excited about it now, but it's actually something we should have had decades ago. Yeah, and it's really frustrating that it's taken so long, even after it was all agreed and everything, for everyone to implement it. It's just logical. The future is real time. You don't have to take advantage of that, but you have to be able to support that. Yeah. And if you want to be able to move money, so I set up an account, um, uh, you know, with a, a money transfer service, uh, and I was able to send my money. It was transfer wise, right? And I was able to send my money. So I set up an account and sent my money to the my UK bank account and did that whole thing in six minutes, and the money was in the bank account in the UK. And I'm like, that's just absolutely incredible, right? Um, but that's the expectation that the next generation, all of our 19-year-olds are up. That's their expectation. They use Snapchat. They use Instagram. They use, you know, whatever the tools are, Facebook. Whatever. They expect everything to be instant. And if you can't move your money anywhere in the world, if you can't convert it into crypto, if you can't cash out crypto for fiat, if you can't do all those things that the next generation would expect to do, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. You're just a dinosaur. Yeah. So You've got to be customer first. Yeah. yeah. You have to be. It's just the expectation. Yeah. Mm. All right, let's jump into these rapid-fire questions. Yeah, go for it. What does your morning look like, typically? Uh, I have two young kids, so my morning um, typically is the kids waking me up and okay. ju- jumping on me for a cuddle and a hug. And, what and time of day is stuff. this normally? Uh, 6.30. Yeah, okay. yeah I, I, I stay up very late and then um, and the kids go to bed early. Um, and so usually I've had a few hours sleep and the kids are already waking me up. Yeah. Jeez, okay. Yeah. And evening routine, how do you sort of decompress at night? Um, one of my, my favorite things is um, watching movies. So I usually sort of we sit down on the couch. So I'll eat dinner and put the kids to bed. I, I, every night I read my kids a story. It's, um, if I am traveling interstate or internationally, I'll do it with FaceTime. Nice. Um, but I, but uh, yeah, for me, being able to see my kids every night and put them to bed. So for my son, um, you know, he's just turned 10 recently um, and, and my, my, my daughter's three. But, um, uh, you know, I... I tried to read him a story every single night. At the moment, we're reading Lord of the Rings, which is just oh, really? a- a- amazing. Um, you know, we did The Hobbit a few years ago, and he totally loved it. And so now we're on to Lord of the Rings. So, so which, which book are you on? We just started like a few nights ago, so we're up ah, to okay. chapter two of, of of the first book. Yeah, um, which and my dad did this. Oh mate, it's amazing, right? So <laughs> you so, can play this back to him in ten years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for me, uh, that's the most important part of my evening is, is yeah. putting the kids to bed and, and spending time with them and, and that sort of stuff. And then I usually um, will either eat or sit on the couch with my wife um, and. Then, you know, we might watch some Netflix or, or whatever. Um, but I'm a massive, like, movie buff. So so for me, I have, like, a home cinema. And so after my wife has gone uh-huh. to bed, she goes to bed early. So, like, after my wife has gone to bed and the kids are in bed, then that's sort of me time. And so the way I decompress is I'll watch a movie, usually while I'm working. But, but I mean, I'll, you know, I'm doing, I'm tinkering on some emails or whatever. Um, but, yeah, but I like to just sort of sit back and relax and just, yeah, yeah. just chill. What have you watched in the last two weeks that has really stood out? Uh, nothing good. Um, but you okay. know, like I watched the new X Men movie, and I thought um, uh, I thought it was the worst of them. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. yeah. I'm not even going to bother seeing it. No, and I, I, I've watched a couple of other movies, some classics. So I've watched all the Matrix series just again because mm-hmm. I, I listen to movie podcasts as well when I'm driving, and um, all sorts of podcasts, but I particularly yeah, like yeah. the movie one. And they were talking, they were interviewing people in their favorite movies, and someone said, you know, it was the Matrix or whatever. And they said, oh, I've only ever watched the first one. You know, don't worry about the others; they're rubbish or whatever. And I'm like, oh, I have a fond memory of watching yeah. the three in a row, so I watched all of them. Um, so we watched the John Wicks again as well after okay. after that. So I watched the Matrixes and got Keanu Reeves, and then we sort of watched, them. and then I watched Point Break. You know, so what what I tend to <laughs> do is I sort of fixate on a particular um, actor theme. Yeah, or a theme or an actor yeah. and so because we did Matrix then we did John Wick and then we did Point Break um, yeah. and, and, and so uh, the other, and before that I was doing um, 
Uh, I did Men in Black, and so there's the new Men in Black movie, and so I watched all the old ones. What, what did you think of that? Um, I haven't watched it. It's lined up ready to watch. Okay. And so yeah. I was, was going to do it last night, and then I fell asleep on the couch. It's so funny because mm. this is my thing. I've been trying to realize, what is my hobby? Like, I really, really, really like stories. Like, there's no doubt that is the thing that I grew up on coming from a printer-publisher family. That's the thing. And I've been in denial of that for so many years getting into the finance world. But, you know, if you look at my YouTube uh, recommended, it's like clips. And the theme for me in the last week, I don't know, it comes up every year just because it must come up into the ether is a week or so ago was obviously... 9-11 because I just it's just utterly fa- like some of the documentaries there's one where they it's these two young French brothers and they're the first time sort of documentarians and they followed these finer fire crews around the city but then it got into the recommended feed got into the classic like Big Short and Margin Call I don't know how it got to from there but now I'm being like hit with uh, clips and scenes from certain movies and I just I, I love that stuff I love watching in clips, it's it's got to be my thing. Yeah, I don't yeah, know that, what it is. That's awesome. Um, all right, best purchase under two hundred dollars. Uh, that's a tricky one. Probably for me, my my first paycheck when I was um, starting out in technology. I said I was maybe sixteen, and I had my first IT job in the city. Um, it was probably more than that, but I um uh, I, I remember that I had to sort of choose between buying a monitor, okay, or a mattress. And my theory was that if I bought this mattress, it was probably it was probably around about two hundred bucks. It might have been a bit more. It might have been like one ninety nine or two ninety nine or whatever. Um, was that I'd get a good night's sleep and then I'd be more productive at work? Like that was my theory. Um, and so I bought that. Yeah, I bought a mattress. That was I, I actually. So that was probably that was probably it. Um, yeah, I think it's really important. So for me, because I, I, as I said, I stay up late and then um, uh, typically somebody wakes me up early. Back in those days, it was probably like um, I think my girlfriend or my wife or whatever at the time. Uh, but but nowadays um, uh, it's the kids. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I think sleep is really really important. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think sleep is one of the big things I've noticed in the last year that I absolutely absolutely need and so I've made made a very good point of, yeah. of doing it I'm, I'm, I'm pretty bad at it but my, my brother um, him and I are sort of you know we grew up together like best mates but he's sort of opposite so he's right into the fitness and healthy eating and all this other stuff and sleep and he, if he doesn't get 10 hours of sleep then he's like you know the world it's not worth living so Jesus. he'll go to bed like really early um, and then uh, and then get up really early um, and, and he's just religious about it yeah um, look I, I, I know I need 9 hours sleep yeah um and for the last three days, I have not gotten that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I've done pretty well the last few weeks. It's just this week has been one of those bu- – you, you get it, right? You yeah. get those busy, busy weeks. All right, last question for you. If you could have a billboard anywhere in Australia, where would it be, first of all? So think about best type of placement and then what would you put on it? Or what, what would it say? That's a good question too. I guess you could get philosophical or you could get practical. Um and I think I was going to say it might be different for up versus um, me personally, um, but uh, actually it's probably the same thing. I'd like it to be in a place like the MCG or something where Melbourne's my home, but but where the most number of people would see it. Um, and it would be something, in my view, it would be something along the lines of um, learn from others' mistakes. Like don't make the mist- same mistakes that everyone else did. Make your own mistakes, learn from it. Um, and, and, and sort of yeah, just to communicate a message that no matter how tough things get, it can always get better. And, and, and everything in life is, is, is a learning experience and a journey. Yeah. And we should all have the sort of passion for the future 
Um, and then, yeah, so that's sort of a, a message. I don't know exactly what it would look like, but but the message would be basically that, is to try and learn from others, uh, share your experiences, um, and, and learn from your mistakes and always continually getting better and better. And mm. I think if you have that sort of view and perspective, and if I could communicate that with a billboard, I'd, I'd love that because it's hard to shout that from the top of the top of the building. Yeah, standing on the shoulders of giants and knowing that you can always get better. I love, that's one of my favourite things, reading stories, biographies of people who were successful 200 years ago and seeing what stands com- common amongst uh, amongst their personality traits, whatever it may be, and perseverance is definitely one of those, um, and being optimistic. Uh, we always think, like, we've got that introspection illusion where we think that whatever is happening in our lives at that greatest moment, uh, at that moment is the greatest thing that will ever happen to us, but most of the time it isn't, unless, of course, someone you know died. But, <laughs> but generally... Uh, yeah, we just over-dramatise things, I think. Um, Dom, thank you so much for coming in. No worries. Where can people find you on the interwebs? Anywhere. Um, Dom Pym. <laughs> so I'm on um, Twitter all the time, LinkedIn. But I think if you just go to up.com.au, check out up, and then uh, you, you'll find me on there and you can contact me however you like. Up's on Instagram. Yep. You're on LinkedIn. Up's on in, uh, LinkedIn as well. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure if people type in up banking. It all you can't there. miss out. Yeah, Twitter's probably the place where I spend most of my time talking to customers. Yeah, that's right. Well, look, thanks for coming in, mate. It's been no a worries. pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure being here. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks. Yeah. See you, mate. Thank you for making it to the end. Before you run off, subscribe if you enjoyed this episode or do leave us a rating. For Instagram, go follow us on at uncommon underscore podcast. For YouTube, search uncommon podcast and don't forget to subscribe if you're watching this video. Also give us a like or leave a comment on what you thought about the episode. But until next time, thanks so much for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Are you an entrepreneur or marketer who needs help making podcasts, video or animation? Perhaps you don't have time to manage a freelancer or the budget to deal with an agency. Well, Neural Media can help you with simple and affordable content creation, saving you time and money by taking away the pain of producing that content. To learn more, head to neural.com slash media. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash media. Play around with our pricing or request a callback directly. Listeners to the show receive a special discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON.